Uh, good evening, everyone. And thank you, Alison. If you have a Bible, would you like to turn to uh, James chapter 4? It's page 1215 in those red uh, pew Bibles. There have been uh, times whenever we have come to read Scripture, and I've suggested that it should carry a, a certificate rating due to the content, but this, this is not one of those times. But this is one of those occasions where a warning should nevertheless be issued. You know when you're, uh, you're watching the news, for example, and the presenter says that the following report includes some details which some viewers may find upsetting. Well, what we're about to read probably falls into that category. Some of the details, even some of the language that James uses here is, is pretty unnerving. For anyone who is uh, visiting with us tonight, we have been uh, reading our way through this New Testament instruction manual on authentic Christian living under the title, Keeping It Real. And as we have discovered, James has this ability to be direct and to be challenging and to be all too real. So let's stand together for the public reading of God's agitating word. Starting at verse 13 of chapter 4, going to verse five, 6 of chapter 5. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming to you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Grab a seat. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing this week? What are you doing over the next month? I'm pretty sure all of us have got plans. We've got dates. We've got events in the diary. We've got them on our phone. We've synced our devices. We have organized what we're doing and when we're doing it and, and where we're going. 
And whenever your life is busy and, it, and it's getting busier and you have multiple commitments, you need to make plans, don't you? You need to sort out your schedule and, and maybe you even need to coordinate the rest of the family's schedules. It's all part and parcel of life. It's all part and parcel of modern life, but there's a real danger in it, and James speaks into the real danger with this. And it's the danger of presumption. The danger of presumption, where we make plans, A, as if we're in control, or B, as if tomorrow, as if this week is a guarantee. It's not that making plans is wrong or it's pointless, but when you plow on ahead and you make plans and you forget to reference God, then you do have a problem. James observes a group of traveling merchants who have this mentality that they're busy, they're making plans, they're sorting out their own lives, their own schedules. And so he cuts to the chase in typical fashion. But what he says next is, is not only applicable for traveling businessmen and businesswomen. James raises the reality and, and puts his finger on the uncomfortable truth that none of us knows what will happen tomorrow. None of us. No matter what plans we have put in place. None of us really has a clue what will happen in the next 24 hours, even in the next hour. We, we don't know the future. And why? Because we're not in control, despite what we sometimes think and how we sometimes behave. We may not get this service finished before something happens that none of us seen common, including the return of Jesus, or any of us taking our very last breath. And that is, for many people, a profoundly unsettling thought, and it's why I said a moment ago that, that some people may find the content that we're going to look at tonight disturbing, maybe even offensive. You see, we do, I do find myself putting things in the diary as if they are a given. It's not just that things are planned, they're assumed. And James issues a wake-up call reminding us, listen, do you know something? You're not the captain of your own ship. You're not the captain of your own destiny. And he, as he stresses this point, he, he, he asks a rather direct question. He says, what is your life? And then he quickly follows up the question with the answer. And again, it's an answer that ruffles a few feathers. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You're here one moment, you're gone the next. In a word, your life is fleeting. It's transient. Richard Needham, in, in his book, Wit and Wisdom, says, the seven stages of man are spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. Not entirely sure what the drills refer to, maybe routine, but the point is simple. Life is brief. None of us knows how long we've got. None of us knows. I was really glad Alison prayed for that Alan family. 
standing outside of school, waiting to pick up your kid, and lightning strikes. Still alive. But he didn't know, as he set off for that primary school, what was going to happen. You see, none of us knows. John Blanchard put it like this. The moment a man is born, he begins to die. And that death could come at any time, by design, by disease, by disaster, by decay. Man is not here to stay, he's here to go. And James is not the only biblical writer that reminds us of the brevity of life. Our days on earth, says the writer of 1 Chronicles, our days on earth are like what? A passing shadow. That's it. Psalm 39, the writer says, You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but just a breath. At best, each of us is just a breath. The writer of Psalm 102 says, For my days they disappear like smoke. And James himself has already alluded to the fact that the rich, this is back in chapter 1, the rich will pass away like a wild flower, picking up something that we've already thought about in Psalm 103. The rich will pass away like a wild flower. And I was reading this week uh, about something Rico Tice, the guy behind Christianity Explored, what he, he once did whenever he was talking about this very issue. He asked the audience, and the audience comprised of several hundred people, he asked them if they would raise their hands if they knew their great-grandfather's first name. Very few people raised their hands. I wonder how many of us, I'm not going to get us to do this, but I wonder how many of us would raise our hands if we know our great-grandfather's first name. And then he went on to explain, as only a few hands were raised, he went on to explain that this was a man who was around not that many decades ago, and yet he's largely forgotten and unknown. Our lives are fleeting, he said, and it may not be many years before we are forgotten, even by our own families. See, the world moves on, time moves on, and we need to remember that. Why do we need to remember that? Because we are not in control, and we are not at the center of it all. What is your life? It's a vapor. Or as Peterson puts it in the message, you're nothing but a wisp of fog catching a brief bit of sun before disappearing. Now, I know this all sounds a bit morbid, Remember, Northern Ireland did get beat earlier. Sorry, I just spoiled that for someone who's recorded it. It all sounds a bit morbid, even fatalistic. Like, what is the point? Which is why, again, I said earlier, some listeners may find this information upsetting. But as James writes on, he offers an important piece of advice, a kind of necessary corrective, a different way to approach your life and a different way to speak, which guards against this idea and this mindset, yeah, we're in control. 
Here's the necessary corrective. Look at verse 15. Here's what James says. Instead, you ought to say, now what he says next should be fascinating because James is saying here, instead, this is what you ought to say. And here's what we ought to say. If it is the Lord's will, we will live. Or we will do this, or we will do that. If it is the Lord's will, DV. It's not that long ago that you would have seen those letters on letters. Even heard announcements which would have included them. Does anyone know what the letters DV stand for? Here's a wee challenge in your Latin. Very impressive. What does it mean? God willing. You don't hear that a lot anymore. Sure you don't. And maybe that's partly because it became a bit repetitive. Bit of a throwaway formula, a protective talisman, bit of Christian jargon. But it's still incredibly important. I'm not suggesting that after tonight you write DV after every entry in your diary or you say it every time you make plans, but I do believe we need to recapture the mindset that recognizes that if it's the Lord's will, and only if it's the Lord's will, we will live. And we will do this tomorrow, and we will do that tomorrow. And James is not against planning, but he is warning us against planning that does not acknowledge the Lord's sovereign overruling in our lives. All that we do is in the hands of God, or to put it in the words of the writer, of the, the, the wisdom writer of Proverbs, we can make our plans, but it's the Lord who determines our steps. And so when it comes to how we plan, the first thing I want to say, and just if you hear nothing else, hear this. When it comes to how we plan, let us not be presumptuous. We are not at the center. We are not in control. And if you think you are, just remember, your, your life is a mist. Fleeting. Transient. Passing. But James isn't finished. And this is where the language gets pretty raw. You see, if we neglect or if we forget who is in control, if we get on with life and make our plans without reference to God or with very little cross-reference to God, then any talk of kind of bigging up our plans, this is what I'm going to do this week, this is what I'm doing next month, this is where I'm going from a whole, whatever, any bigging of that up, all that kind of talk, says James, all that kind of boasting about what I'm going to do and what I've organized and what I've planned. Do you know what James says? It's evil. That's strong. Surely, surely James can't mean it's evil. And why would he use such strong language? Well, ultimately, you see, it reeks of pride, the deadliest of sins. Verse 16 in the NIV, and particularly in the ESV translation, refers to arrogance. Here it is in the NIV. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. This is what I'm going to do this week. I'm in control. I'm the captain of my own ship, my own destiny. I'll make as many plans as I want to make without reference to God, or with very little reference to God. 
Or as it says in the ESV, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And therefore, what James is saying is, you see when you think you are independent, see when you think you're self-sufficient, see when you think you are in control and you forget how frail you are, that's pride. And that's evil. Authentic Christian living is not presumptuous about tomorrow but instead acknowledges, if it is the Lord's will. If it is the Lord's will. An authentic Christian living also acknowledges our lives are brief, and therefore I have got to live them humbly before Almighty God. But let's move on because James then addresses rich people. And this is well known as some of the strongest language that you will find in the New Testament. And this is the problem when you're kind of working your way through a book. You come up against texts like this that you kind of have to confront. And I, I, don't, I don't enjoy whenever I come up against some of these sort of, these sort of texts that, that, are, that do seem harsh and, and, and do seem strong and do seem very personal. And I recognize that different people will hear them in different ways and process them in different ways and process what I say in different ways. But I've got to try to just reflect what I read and what is before us in God's Word. Now, there's a fair amount of debate and discussion about whether these rich people were Christians. Whether these rich people that James now refers to at the beginning of chapter 5 were actually part of the church or not, although given how James begins his letter addressing it to the 12 scattered tribes, and then as he begins his letter, and I think it's verse 2 of chapter 1, he refers to them as brothers and sisters, it seems slightly more likely that they were in the church. But either way, what James goes on to say in chapter 5 is effectively targeted towards all those people who are rich. Unfortunately, when it comes to defining what does it mean to be rich, well, we're not told exactly. Back in chapter 4, verse 13, the first verse we read together tonight, James already has made reference to making money. I didn't major on it. It was at the end of verse 13. But making money in itself is not bad. But whenever making money becomes the priority, that drives our planning, then it is bad. Whenever it becomes the priority in dictating our plans and our schedules and what we do and what we invest our time in, then we do have a problem, says James. If our planning and our priorities as Christians are no different from the world around us, then, then what does that say about our faith? It's just an add-on? It's just an appendix? In James chapter 5, he, he highlights the dangers of wealth, and he does use some uncompromising words and phrases. It's not that money, please hear me in this, it's not that money or making money or being wealthy is wrong in itself. And the Bible's clear on that elsewhere, but it is our attitude towards it and what we do with it or neglect to do with it that can be the issue. 
It's our attitude towards it and what we do with it and what we neglect to do with it that can be an issue. And James here identifies three sinful traits or pitfalls. And the first is, is hoarding. Verses 2 and 3, your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you, and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And it's a picture of, of waste, where stuff is amassed for its own sake. It's not that the owner needed it. It's not that he wanted to use it. The owner just wanted to have it. And in the last days, which, which is a reference to the ultimate end, the day of reckoning, amassed wealth and possessions and stuff are not going to impress or determine anything as we stand before God and give an account of our lives. Because what does James say? He makes the point that what is wasted testifies against us. I mean, this is a strong piece of thinking. What we waste will testify against us. It exposes the heart. Hoarding is foolish because all that stuff doesn't last. It corrodes it rusts. It disappears. We live in a society where accumulation is seen as good. Having lots of possessions is often a measure of someone's life and success. The more you have, the better you've done. But James and so much of the rest of Holy Scripture cuts right across that. It's not that saving for the future or contributing to pension plans, for example, are wrong. It's not that we don't enjoy what we've got and what we've earned. But again, it's back to the attitude. It's about the way we go about handling this. It's about keeping God at the center of our finances. It's about using what we have rather than simply amassing it. Or stockpiling it. Or simply to borrow another biblical phrase, storing up treasure on earth. Kurt Richardson provocatively states, don't, have I got it? No, thought I had it. Kurt Richardson provocatively states, reflecting on these verses, the rituals of amassing wealth and curating precious objects are really a dance with death. Hoarding. Amassing. Don't eat it. Don't even use lots of it. But like to have it. And their corrosion will one day, it seems, testify against us. Eat your flesh like fire. The second sinful trait or pitfall is extravagance. Verse 5, and I'm jumping verse 4, we'll come back to it, but verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. 
And again, James isn't having a go at those who are enjoying the good things that God has given them, but he is having a go at those for whom it's all about me. It's all about my lavish lifestyle and the service of self rather than serving others. Self-indulgence at the expense of others or without consideration for others is simply wrong. And no authentic Christian can or should entertain that mindset or attitude. And again, the warning is clear here. You're living it up. You're pushing it to the limit. You're satisfying your every desire, your every want, but you're totally forgetting that the day of judgment is coming down the tracks for all of us. You're fat. You've indulged. You haven't held back. But guess what? The day of slaughter is imminent. I I did say the language is strong. But we just fatten ourselves up and amass all this stuff and just live in luxury and self-indulgent, then all we're doing is getting ourselves ready for the day of slaughter. And the third sinful trait and danger is injustice. Verse 4, the pay you did not give the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you, and the cries of the workers have been heard by the Lord all-powerful. Do you know it can be so easy for the rich and the wealthy to overlook the needs of others and the responsibility they have towards them? It's also easy to exploit others for the sake of personal gain. Even as consumers in the West, all of us needs to be careful about our purchasing habits. That they're not promoting, they're not encouraging further exploitation and injustice towards workers in the developing world, just as an example. And although the rich and, and, and all of us can kind of carry on regardless and not give a lot of this a second thought, the cries of those who are being exploited, says James, the cries of those who are being treated unfairly, who are being, who are being forced into further poverty, who are being oppressed, the cries of those people are heard by the Lord All-Powerful, who promises to act on their behalf. And so James is clear here, and as I said earlier, and I know it, it, it's, it is unsettling. It's one of the reasons why I, I assume that that women's conference has called their day, looking at the book of James, Heart Matters, because this is about the heart. This exposes the heart. And James is clear that hoarding and extravagance and injustice are extremely dangerous pitfalls, and they're wrong. And unless we take them seriously, then you can understand his opening sentiments in verse 1. And this is strong. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming to you. And the problem, as I say, it's not in being rich. It's not in being wealthy. It's not in having money. The problem is, as Paul told Timothy, it's loving it. 
Because when you love it, then those three crimes become almost inevitable. You will hoard. You will live an extravagant life. You will practice injustice. You will exploit because it's all about what I get. And to quote Paul again, to those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's why, isn't it, that Jesus said it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. And one other commentator has kind of summed it up in these words. There is no sin in merely being rich, but where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired the spirit which it intends to engender in the heart and the way in which it's used. But it's upsetting. Or is it life-altering? I suppose that's the question, isn't it? Does it just upset us when we read God's Word? Or does it give us the necessary corrective that is sometimes so important? 